Welcome. Uh, before we get started, um, we've actually got a lot going on, obviously. Um, <laughs> needless to say. Uh, but we have a lot going on programmatically as well. Um, so I just wanted to give you a sneak preview of what's happening in November. Um, uh, on November 9th at 7 p.m., uh, we'll continue our Between the Lines book club. Uh, that's a virtual program uh, where we'll have a conversation about the wettest county in the world based on the true story of the Bondurant Boys, a notorious gang of moonshiners who ran liquor through Franklin County, Virginia during Prohibition. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with how the book club works, if you get a chance to read the book, some or all of it in advance, that's helpful. Um, you do need to make a reservation in advance uh, for the Zoom program, and then you join our education staff for a conversation about the book. Uh, on November 10th at 6 p.m., uh, another virtual program, uh, State of the Museum. Uh, that's where you'll be able to tune in to a conversation with our CEO and President Jamie Boskett, who will give you an update on what's happening at the museum. And believe me, there's a lot happening. On November 12th at noon, uh, our Curators at Work program will continue. That is also a virtual program. Uh, the title of the program is Walking Off the War, Veterans on the Appalachian Trail. Join U.S. Marine Corps veteran Sean Gobin and VMHC curator Karen Sherry to learn more about how the Appalachian Trail became the catalyst for his recovery from combat and the inspiration for the founding of Warrior Expeditions, a nonprofit organization that sponsors excursions for veterans to promote healing. And then finally, our next banner lecture will be on Veterans Day um, at noon, uh, Ends of War, the Unfinished Flight of Lee's Army After Abomattox. Carolyn Janney will be here talking about her new book. Uh, but today we're very happy to have Catherine Babb Magira with us uh, as we approach the weekend and Halloween. Uh, we'll have a conversation about Edgar Allan Poe. Poe was one of the sat, lived one of the saddest lives ever. He lost virtually everyone he loved, and his grinding poverty meant that he and his family were sometimes starving in the literal sense. Poe's impossible personality got him fired from job after job, drawing him into feuds that continued even after his death. Despite these setbacks, his poetry and fiction have been translated into multiple languages and his image is recognizable to people all over the world. In fact, Poe's mistakes and missteps worked for him, and in that sense, his life is a repudiation of conventional self-help and the supposed power of positive, positive thinking. Today, Catherine is with us to talk us uh, to, about uh, Poe's life and how it can teach us counterintuitive lessons on achieving creative success despite the odds and your flaws, quote unquote. Catherine Babb Magira is a writer and journalist who has contributed to Slate, Quartz, CNBC, and NBC News. A frequent podcast and radio guest, she has appeared on NPR and Lifehackers Upgrade, 
She is the author of the book she's going to talk about today, Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru. Please welcome Catherine Babb Magira. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's a huge pleasure to be here with you to preach the good news of one of the greatest writers and greatest screw-ups of all time, our mutual friend, Edgar Allan Poe. And I want to talk to you about why those things may not be mutually exclusive in the way we tend to think, that is, being a screw-up and being an artistic genius. In fact, I want to argue that they may be deeply intertwined, if you're doing it right. Poe's life and work prove this point. And if you're anything like me, I think you may find this to be a deeply hopeful message that gives you encouragement for your own career, whatever it may look like. Uh, you can be a screw up and you can still succeed. In fact, if you're not successful yet, maybe it's because you haven't screwed up enough yet. But first, let's go into a bit of background. All the illustrations you're going to see, the original ones at least, are done by a guy named Javier Olivares, who illustrated my book. He's a Spanish artist and wonderfully talented. All right, to background. If comedy is tragedy plus time, then Edgar, Allen's po Edgar Allan Poe's life reads like a punchline, just one long, sad trombone. Here's the short, oversimple version. Everyone got sick and everyone died starting with both Poe's parents before he turned three. A wealthy family adopted him, but only in an informal sense. He lived with them, but he never really belonged. And about the time he reached 18, Poe found himself penniless and disowned, forced to craft his masterpieces in cold, dirty, rented rooms. Later, his beloved wife, Virginia, contracted the same disease that had killed his biological parents, and he became, at last, by his own account, insane, with long intervals of horrible sanity. Every hand that fed him, he chomped. Every bridge he could burn, he torched. Finally, in October of 1849, Poe collapsed in the street outside a tavern, and his career of provocation and rule-breaking ground to a halt, in a literal gutter. Yet what followed was even worse. Poe's greatest frenemy, Rufus W. Griswold, wrote his obituary. Publishing his insults under a pseudonym, Griswold told the world that Poe was a cynical, depraved drunk with no friends who had only ever used his talent for spite. Now here's the twist. That hit job of an obit turned out to be really good PR. Not only did Poe's colleagues and, in fact, numerous friends sprint to his defense, the notoriety that the obit helped create caused a scandal-loving public to seek out his work as never before. You could say that, in the end, Poe's feuds, mistakes, and missteps worked out for him. Or you could say they weren't mistakes or missteps at all. Instead, a series of brilliant career moves and an astoundingly effective system for success. Anyone can get to the top doing all the right things. To make it to the top doing all the wrong things, that takes genius. Today, nearly 200 years since his death, 
millions of people across the world know and love Poe. He's recognized as one of the most brilliant, original, and influential writers of all time. His poetry and short stories have been translated into every major language and adapted for every new technology, from radio broadcasts to web series to memes. Poe's fans have included highbrow elites like Vladimir Nabokov and Alfred Hitchcock, and he's enjoyed off-the-charts pop success, too. Baltimore named its NFL team the Ravens. Lou Reed, Joan Baez, and Stevie Nicks have all either recorded songs about Poe or put Poe's own words to music. The Beatles stuck him in the top row, eighth from the left, on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. In 2001, Britney Spears kicked off her Dream Within a Dream tour, and the actress Evan Rachel Wood has the final two lines of that poem inked in black across her upper back. As we speak, Sylvester Stallone is trying to produce a Poe biopic. And if you should feel like raising a toast, in 2015, Maryland's Raven Beer rolled out Annabelle Lee White, a wheat beer angel's envy. And in 2018, a Philadelphia distillery launched a whiskey called Fortunato's Fate. Who wouldn't want to achieve such highbrow prominence? We should all be so lucky. Yet somehow the notoriety lingers. Despite Poe's unparalleled worldwide renown, we continue to conceive of him as a never-do-well. Just some hopeless, almost Chaplin-esque loser, when the question we should be asking is, what's his secret? In a better world, Poe would be considered a guru on par with Oprah or Deepak Chopra, Austin Kleon, the four-hour workweek guy, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Dr. Laura Schlesinger. As it is, we celebrate the work but sadly underrate the man. Except we're not making a mistake about just one man. We're making a mistake about renegades, rebels, and outcasts more generally. We're also making a very big mistake in assuming that we know which creative, professional, and even existential strategies work and which ones are dead ends. Success on post scale doesn't just happen. It isn't solely a matter of genius either. It requires a unique vision, and more than that, the determination, the narcissism, and the megalomania to hew to that vision no matter what anyone else says. Now, we're going to look for more specific lessons that Poe has to share with us, especially those of you who may aspire to write, paint, make art, sing, uh, tell jokes, or what have you. So maybe that's you. Let's look. Lesson number one is productivity. To succeed as a creative, you're going to have to produce work, perhaps a very great deal of it. And if you've read any advice books on the subject, you're probably familiar with the usual tips. Get up early, work hard, live a clean, sober life so that you can put your ingenuity and your energy into your work. And perhaps for ritual's sake, light a candle before you sit down to it. Maybe do a little yoga to get limber, get you into the right headspace. But perhaps that's not what leads to productivity at all. Maybe what we need are deeply unideal conditions and circumstances. If we look to Poe's example, we see that in his day, he enjoyed a vastly unjust legal and financial framework. For most of the 19th century, copyright, copyright law was such 
that American publishers could freely reprint the work of any European author, paying those authors literally nothing. Now this left publishers understandably reluctant to pay for any work by American authors. They didn't wanna pay for book manuscripts. And this also flowed into the periodical market because they could appropriate work from Europe as well. Why pay a writer like Poe as much as a handful of sticky couch change if you don't have to? Now, staff writers at magazines at the time also made salaries that were incredibly low, equal or about a little bit less than today's federal minimum wage. Freelancers feared even worse because they were being paid on a per, per page or a per story basis. Now, if you've ever read any Poe and you thought, wow, this guy is wordy, then now you know, he was padding it out in order to scrape out a little bit more money. So no copyright protections, extremely low rates for editors and freelancers. These are hardly ideal conditions for any writer or creative person more generally. And yet, just as Poe got wordy in his prose, he also produced reams and reams of material just trying to keep the wolf from the door. Call it productivity. If the stakes involve you and your family potentially starving, then you will put your butt in the chair and produce the prose. The lesson for our own time is similar. Very few of us enjoy ideal conditions when we go to produce our own stories or paintings or TikTok dances or what have you. We need money. We need to attract an audience. Sometimes we're low on inspiration and we don't feel like doing the work. Yet all of this can serve you. Desperate conditions and desperate need may be the most powerful incentives you can have to do your work. I don't suggest that this is a pure good. Of course not. We don't live in a perfect world, however. In order to be productive ourselves, to an extent, we have to accept the conditions as they are and get to it anyway. This leads to lesson number two, selling out. This lesson follows closely from the last one. In the same way that we might hope for ideal conditions, but almost never get them, few artists and creatives want to cater to the marketplace when doing their creative work. Yet being forced to cater to the market, even becoming a total sellout, can serve you. It can advance your career. I'm going to share a section from my book to ground a particular moment of Poe's life for you. Today, of course, we associate him directly with his goth horror stories. People will go so far as to tell you that Poe invented the goth horror genre. That's not quite true. Poe's initial ambition was to write romantic poetry. He began writing this poetry as a schoolboy here in Richmond. And when he was about 11, his foster father, John Allen, actually approached his school teacher about publishing some of those poems. That didn't happen, but Poe kept writing throughout his teenage years. And like many of us, he had the usual moony dreams about the world recognizing his genius from the word go. That didn't happen either. Instead, in his late teens, he fell out with his foster father. He found himself essentially on his own. He would spend the next few years flailing around, signing up for the army, getting into West Point only to be kicked out again, and then falling out with John Allen yet again. He was trying to publish his poems, but he was struggling to, and he wasn't getting any of the recognition he wanted either. It was a welter of failing and grasping at straws. 
ending in no great triumph, more like the opposite of triumph. By the end of this rough period, Poe wasn't a teenager anymore. He was 22 years old, broke, miserable, and in many ways worse off than he'd ever been. He was aging by 19th century standards, and he was still not yet a success. It could sound like a moment for despair, but he didn't, and neither should we. Poe's brutal 20-something come down served him incredibly well in the same way that ours can serve us. Over the next few months and years, Poe came to a critical realization. No one was going to finance his doing exactly what he wanted to do. So he made a choice. If no one would fork out for his poetry, then he'd write stories. The turned up to 11 kind about shipwreck, ghosts, hauntings, toothless corpses, and old wives coming back from the dead only to murder new wives. It was super goth stuff, uber commercial. This was not his dream. Poe scoffed at the spine tinglers even as he churned them out, oblivious to the fact that his brazen sellout would still be winning him readers today. All he knew at the time was that magazines and newspapers would pay for this material, and so he could start to eke out a living as a freelance writer, even if the rates did skew very low. So, unemployable 20-something meet career. This is the exact problem that many of us are trying to solve at 24, 25, and many of us are still trying to solve at 35, 55, and beyond. Figuring out how to make a living is one of life's greatest challenges. Most of us suffer at least a few years of spinning out, taking up paths and abandoning them, begging our loved ones for a place to stay or maybe a co-signature on a loan. Uh, can you hear my dad sighing? Before we figure out a way to earn steady cash, any cash, period. Now, why is this? It's because our first choices aren't always feasible. We grow up dreaming of becoming poets, comedians, film directors, actors, musicians, models, scholars. We crave res <laughs> prestige, respect, and expense accounts. We would really prefer that we never have to dirty our hands, compromise our visions, or scrape and bow to the demands of the marketplace. The truths we discover about money and economics, we mostly discover against our will. But you might choose to be more proactive, like Poe. Say there's a field you're desperate to break into. What if, first of all, you strive to pay attention to the market and to understand it, including how individuals and whole companies in that field make money, essentially what the underlying economic picture looks like? Doing this can give you the best possible sense of where the opportunities lie, who the producers are, who the consumers are, where supply meets demand. Why? because paying attention to the ebb and flow of the market, tracking cash flows as they slosh through a system, you tap into one of the most important sources of information there is. And the chances are that you will get better at your work, whatever your work happens to be. Selling out made Poe a better writer, not just a more successful one. The longer he went on writing commercial work, the more his genius grew until he was composing the masterpieces of his mature career from The Telltale Heart to The Cask of Amontillado to crowd-pleasing poems like Annabelle Lee. In his 30s, he would go so far as to boast that he wrote The Goldbug and The Raven to achieve those high-minded artistic goals, money, and fame. 
The market Poe focused on was magazines, the periodical market, as I've mentioned. Your market is going to be different. The lesson still holds. You can't excel in a field if you can't grasp it on its most basic level, if you don't understand the underlying why and how. Neither can you relocate a career for yourself or a unique position for yourself in the marketplace, like Poe did with his intellectually and psychologically souped up goth stories. Maybe, like Poe, you should consider lowering your standards and trying to fit your work to the market. Your greatest opportunities well exist in an arena that all your friends regard as crass, gross, dumb, too low to go. Maybe this means you try an untrendy city, an uncool job, a lesser platform, something more mainstream than hip or cutting edge. The best case scenario, forced to earn a damn living, you develop a wide ranging understanding of your field. You become a practitioner and a theoretician, an ideas man, woman, person. You develop an intuitive grasp of workable notions and a set of instincts that you can continue to hone for the rest of your career. Even Poe, with his impossible personality and his intermittent mental health, managed to reach an audience and even to get a job every now and again. So can you. Just as with Poe, studying the market can help you figure out how. Now to lesson three. How can you gain attention for yourself and your work? Let's look to Poe's example, which feels eerily contemporary. Many of you may have heard that Poe was perhaps best known in his own day as an incredibly harsh literary critic. And this is true. From his very first editorial job at the Southern Literary Messenger, which was headquartered just a little bit away from here, Poe reviewed books the way an axe murderer swings an axe. Here's an example. Norman Leslie was a novel written by Theodore Sedgwick Fay, who was an, a popular associate editor at the New York Mirror, which was then one of the most respected publications in the country. Poe did not care. In his 1835 review, he screamed that, that Fay's style was unworthy of a schoolboy and the larger novel full to the brim of absurdities, gross errors in grammar, and egregious sins against common sense. In a subsequent article, Poe struck again, labeling Norman Leslie the silliest book in the world. These attacks did not go unanswered. The staff of the mirror swung back, gleefully informing their far-reaching audience that Poe's own work had been turned down by the phase publisher. And they were also sneering at the messenger for quote unquote, striving to gain notoriety by the loudness of its abuse. Other Northern magazines jumped in too, calling Poe a quack, a fake expert who couldn't, if there were a gun to his head, produce one good page. Now this was the exact fight that Poe had been seeking, more or less for the reasons his enemies identified. He didn't care how his nasty reviews unnerved his messenger boss, T.W. White. Instead of backing off, he doubled down. Over the next 15 years of his career, Poe's criticism remained so caustic and hostile, one victim would characterize it as generally a tissue of coarse personal abuse. Poe leaped between professional and personal grievances, then back again, not only inveighing against bad writing, 
but heaping scorn on people whom he disliked. Now, such behavior may seem out of bounds, even morally revolting. And it is. Frankly speaking, from this vantage point in history, it's hard to see how Poe's unfiltered criticism was a great use of his time, except to the extent that it brought him the 19th century equivalent of eyeballs and clicks. I don't like that it's true, and I expect you don't like it either, but trolling, that is the practice of deliberately provoking others in order to elicit an outsized reaction, whether through an 1840s magazine profile or the modern day internet, is a powerful method of PR. It is a veritable dark art. Just like us, Poe lived in a chaotic, explosive information age, and he faced the same sort of problems that you and I face about how to stand out amid a constant torrent of content. To use an oversimplified example, say that you want to create a thriving YouTube channel. Helpfully, the means of video production have been democratized, making the path accessible at all. At the same time, you're competing with millions of other people with the same goal. You can't possibly keep track of all the other content being created while cultural trends and even whole platforms emerge and disappear with terrifying speed. Producing your videos may take days or weeks. Monetizing those videos and building your audience, that may take years. It doesn't matter if you're a singer-songwriter, an actor, a comedian, a writer, or trying to establish yourself in any other field. Standing out is a near impossible task, and you could be forgiven for trying to figure out ways of gaming the system, of hacking other people's attention spans so that you come to public attention fast. Two roads diverge before you. On the left is the Tom Hanks high road, the virtuous route. You can be polite, even-handed, self-effacing, supportive of others, and here to make friends along the journey. Good luck to you. On the right, there's the iconoclast path, which you will walk alone. You can, like Poe, pose as a fear fearless truth teller while letting your aggrieved psychology hold sway. You can seek the kind of world leveling vengeance that Poe sought at the same time, taking advantage of the way human brains are wired to hone in on threats and negative statements. Even toddlers understand that bad attention is still attention. Ask my toddler. You can mine this primitive vein by being antagonistic, combative, impossible to please or placate, always operating in bad faith. Now, if you choose this path, other people may hate you and they may be right to. What's more, in strictly practical terms, this route is arguably far more crowded than it was in Poe's era. And even then, Poe's peers could readily recognize and name his method. Exceptional harshness is now just as likely to work against you as for you. Users of YouTube, Twitter, and so on have necessarily learned to tune it out, given how overused and overapplied trolling has become. What you might do is carve out a middle path. Poe's criticism, his best criticism, was more than mere trolling. And Poe himself, despite some terrible tendencies, was more than a mere troll. He was also a literary expert, versed in verse, classic literature, and popular forms. And his command of his field was darn near second to none, even if he occasionally cribbed or exaggerated his knowledge. 
Your task is to become an expert too. To really stand out, all the more so now as a negative present, your criticism needs to land, your blows must hit. That does not mean you have to be a slave to fashion, conventional wisdom, or elitist favor treating. There's nothing wrong with having an oppositional sensibility if you also develop mastery of the material and your own models for judging new work. In this happy case, your iconoclasm is no longer a pose and your tendency to iconoclastic overstatement may be fun for everyone involved. Think of Kanye West or Nassim Taleb endlessly beefing as though their careers depend on it and yet still being wildly entertaining while they're at it. And at the same time, advancing the standards by which they want their own work to be judged. We'll call this elevated trolling. If we were to name this middle path, we might call it the path of the pain in the butt. <laughs> trolling for its own sake, when you have no original thoughts or con contributions to make yourself, that's just a way of being a jerk. If you aim to be more of, a <laughs> of an articulate pain, you'll be like Poe at his critical best. Now the next lesson flows from this as well. Having a scandalous personal life. Ways to get attention for yourself and your work. This is a quick one. As you may have heard, Poe married his young cousin, Virginia. Now, this might be eye-catching enough on its own, though the marriage was legal in their day. It also goes to show that if you marry someone inappropriate enough, the resulting scandal may last 170 years and counting, stoking endless fascination with your life. Win-win. What fewer people realize are some of the shenanigans that took place after the marriage, which I'll go into now. Edgar and Virginia were married in 1836 here in Richmond in a boarding house not very far away. Let's fast forward to early 1842 when Virginia fell gravely ill. She was singing and then a blood vessel burst in her throat, a dread sign. Everyone knew what the consumption was and how it would end, though no one could say just when that end might come. For Poe, it was a nightmarish replay of his mother's illness. People with tuberculosis don't just stop breathing and die. Over a long period, breathing becomes more difficult, a more painful struggle. So Virginia lingered, recovering a little and then sickening again, recovering a little and then sickening again, over and over for five years. Each time, Poe would despair of her life and mourn her loss, only to get his hopes up one more time. Anyone who has witnessed a loved one suffer from a terminal illness recognizes this horrible teeter-totter, the gut-wrenching up and down emotional lurch, the way you tilt between sorrow and fear and faint hope, and how sometimes your nerves stretch to breaking, you almost long for that final release, both your loved ones and your own. Take thy beak from out my heart, you want to whisper. Poe wrote The Raven three years into Virginia, Virginia's illness, two years before her death. Not coincidentally, it bears the mark of grieving one's great love, knowing they are beyond the reach of hope, and by the same token, knowing one's own self is now beyond the reach of hope. Even the afterlife holds no promise. This is from The Raven. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, 
tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden, who the angels named Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels named Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. The public went wild. Periodicals across the country and in Europe ran and reran the poem, and tens of thousands of people thrilled to its dark, hypnotic rhythms, its undertow of relentless sadness and almost glamorous doom. Not for the first time in his career or the last, Poe had managed to articulate something arresting, true, and universal about the human experience, and he packaged it inside a pop head. His fiction had given him a modest reputation, but the Raven made him a celebrity. Poe had known all along that the Raven was going to be a huge sensation, and he was pleased and flattered to receive the attention he felt he'd long deserved. It was 1845, and the Poe family was living just outside, outside Manhattan on what is now the Upper West Side, but then was farmland. Invitations to literary events and parties started to pour in, and Poe found himself the object of respect, sympathy, admiration, and fascination, some of it from women, and not all of it merely friendly or discreet. The poet Francis Sargent Osgood always claimed that Poe asked to be introduced to her because he was such a fan of her work, she said. It was probably the other way around. Many years later, she would recall their first meeting. With his proud and beautiful head erect, his dark eyes flashing with the electric light of feeling and of thought, a peculiar, an inimitable blending of sweetness and hauteur in his expression and manner, he greeted me, calmly, gravely, almost coldly, she gushed, yet with so marked an earnestness that I could not help being deeply impressed by it. Thomas Dunn English, another writer who was acquainted with both Poe and Osgood, and who was no great fan of either, would recall Osgood doing the infantile act at one gathering, seated on a footstool, her face upturned to Poe. Poe and Osgood began to exchange letters, their correspondence spilling over into the pages of the newspaper that Poe was editing. Why would they carry on like that in public, you ask? What the heck? Uh, to which I say, only God knows why, and believe me, I feel you. But for whatever reason, Poe published the gooey poems that Osgood wrote to him, and he also replied in print with poems more or less addressing her too. Now, Virginia Poe, for her part, seems to have encouraged this quasi-romantic mutual regard between the two, and she even hosted Osgood at their home. Osgood would later claim that Virginia actually liked her influence on Poe, saying that it kept him from drinking. Now, the real scandal arose when yet another fan entered this fracas, and the details are a little bit murky, but let's see what we know. Elizabeth Ullett was a prolific writer who frequented these same salons and soirees. She knew Poe and Osgood, and she seems to have become jealous at those two becoming close. Visiting Poe at their home, Ellet say, says that she glimpsed an intimate letter from Francis Sergeant Osgood to Poe. She expressed grave concern for Osgood's reputation, i.e. was totally stirring, stirring the pot. At which point Poe said, 
you better pay attention to the letters that you have been sending me. Uh, Ellet was outraged and she asked her brother who was in the army to come and get her own letters back from Poe, at which point Poe went to borrow a gun from Thomas Dunn English and there was a fist fight between English and Poe for reasons that aren't totally clear to us. It was a big mess and it ended up in the newspapers at the time and helped damage Poe's reputation. Though I will say about these things that maybe we ought to take a compassionate approach because these were flirtations rather than anything you might consider to be full blown and that everyone involved had been through a lot of stress. So far be it for us to judge. After this, Poe claimed in print that he had won the fist fight with Thomas Dunn English, claiming that someone had to drag him away from English's prostrate and rascally carcass out of fear for English's life. Poe would say that, wouldn't he? Word flew, rumors spread, everyone got their names dragged to the dirt. The invitation slowed a little bit, and Poe decided it might be a good moment to remove himself and his family from the tattling of many tongues. They up stakes and they moved further out of the city up to the Bronx. Poe never really had relationships by letter or anything else with these women again, but the damage had essentially been done. All of this had been printed in newspapers. It was gossiped about. And yet you might say that this served him because it did help to bring him attention at a moment when otherwise his star might have been fading. Now the lesson for you and I is similar even if I personally lack the guts to follow it. The more scandalous your personal life, the more likely it is to end up in tabloids or simply be gossiped about by people you know. So if you want attention, that's one way to get it. Our final lesson is about making the right enemies. And of course, having a scandalous personal life can help you with that. Now, we've mentioned Poe's incredibly harsh reviews and his quasi-public flirtations with women. Now, in the least surprising development ever, this behavior made a lot of people angry in his day. We're going to talk about one particular moment when Poe picked yet another fight with that fellow journalist and former friend of his, Thomas Dunn English. Remember him from the last lesson. He had witnessed some dirt. Now, in 1846, as part of a larger series of incredibly mean profiles of his fellow writers, Poe published one specifically about Thomas Dunn English. His article began by seeming to praise one, po one English poem, then calling the poem weak and egotistic before smoothly transitioning to a backhanded denunciation of English as a plagiarist and a virtual illiterate without the communist school education. Meanwhile, Poe knew that Thomas Dunn English was educated. He'd gone to prep school and he was a medical doctor. No one would blame English if he sought out some remedial schooling, Poe said. With a little help, English might yet learn how to write a sentence. Now, in provoking English so publicly, Poe had picked a formidable foe. As a friend of his for some years, though not so much lately, English had seen Poe at his worst. He had a front row seat at the whole deal with Francis Sargent Osgood and Elizabeth Ellet. And of course, English was, like Poe, a journalist with connections at major newspapers. A few, do, a few days after 
Poe's portrait of him ran, English's rebuttal appeared in the Evening Mirror, Evening Mirror, uh, blasting Poe as an abject poltroon who stayed wasted for days at a time, slandered ladies' reputations, and frequently passed out in gutters. Taking the bait, Poe then published a rebuttal of his own. When English again responded, Poe announced his plans to sue English and the newspaper that had been publishing English, which handily drew the Evening Mirror's editor, Hiram Fuller, into the fight. Now, today, anyone can attack anyone, say on Facebook, and potentially reach a large audience. In Poe's day, such large platforms were much harder to come by, and very few had the kind of platform that Fuller had, who was emboldened to run blind items like this one. I quote, a poor creature called at our office the other day in a condition of sad, wretched imbecility, bearing in his feeble body the evidences of evil lying and betraying by his talk such radical obliquity of sense that every spark of harsh feeling towards him was distinguished and we could not even entertain a feeling of contempt for one who was so evidently committing a suicide upon his body as he had already done upon his character. Unhappy man. He was accompanied by an aging female relative who was going a weary round in the hot streets, following him to prevent his indulging his love of drink, but he had eluded her watchful eye by some means and was already far gone in a state of inebriation. End quote. Now, this was not blind to anyone at the time. Everyone knew who was being described. And this is in one of the largest newspapers of the country. Despite this onslaught, which definitely bothered him, Poe found himself disheartened yet inspired. And this was the moment when he wrote The Cask of Amontillado, his great revenge tale, in which you'll remember a certain basement looms large. So what might be the lessons for you and I today? Maybe it is that if you're going to, to pick a professional fright, you might go for broke. Pick the most devastating, potentially damaging one possible. Don't attack a random person. Select someone who's seen you at your absolute worst and who will have no scruples about exaggerating your flaws. Then you might use the resulting feud as a source of fresh and fiendish inspiration, forcing yourself to succeed at a moment when you might otherwise be wallowing in exhaustion, self-pity, burnout, or despair. So long as you can find your score settling and revenge-seeking to your art, too, then you may produce lasting work that speaks to millions, not to mention avoid a lengthy prison sentence and becoming the subject of some true crime podcast. Of course, we all know. It would be better to avoid this kind of behavior altogether, to never make frenemies, enemies, or rivals to begin with. But given Poe's personality, and maybe ours, maybe it's inevitable. Like mom said, you're not going to be everyone's cup of amontillado. But who says you can't prosper anyway? Sure, mentorships and supportive friendships are important to your long-term creative success. But just as important are those people who make us feel terrible about ourselves, who make us feel like losers or worse, who trigger us to suck in our gut and try harder. So even if right now you don't have an old friend against your against whom you are plotting terrible revenge, maybe it's time to go out and find one. 
Maybe you actively seek out a professional nemesis even. Here again, Poe shows us the way. During the same period that Poe was tussling, tussling with English and Fuller in the pages of the New York Mirror, he was also occasionally hanging out with a guy named Rufus W. Griswold, another literary peer with whom over years he had alternate, alternately smooshed and clashed. clashed. What Poe seems not to have realized is that he was Griswold's nemesis. After Poe's death, Griswold worked like the most diligent, dedicated, if evil, press agent imaginable, slandering Poe, drawing an outsized reaction, and creating an indelible PR images, image that wildly exaggerated and sometimes outright invented Poe's flaws and, flaws and crimes. Would Poe have been as successful or closely followed after his death if Griswold had been a decent human being? if he had been of sound mind, and if Poe had not been his nemesis. It's impossible to know, but frankly, highly doubtful. On balance, most likely none of us would choose to be involved in such tussles and battles. But if you are, take heart. Frenemies, enemies, and haters can be the best thing that ever happens to you. Final thoughts. Looking to Poe's legacy. As you can see, none of this is necessarily a call for deliberate bad behavior, so much as it is a call for you to both boldly embrace contrarian attitudes and to champion unusual ideas, counterintuitive ideas, no matter how they may challenge whatever establishment or existing balance of power. Nonconformism is the sheer most powerful existential strategy. If you fail in that, there's nothing for the jerks to talk about. So if you find yourself condemned, cast out, gossiped about, shut out of the highest circles, you can be glad. You're on exactly the right path. What Poe once called a route obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only. He would know. Few writers have ever been as thoroughly discredited, hated, and reviled as Edgar Allan Poe. And it's precisely this notoriety that makes him the towering, universally recognized cultural icon that he is today. My fellow angel, you could do worse. Thank you so much. That concludes that. I'm happy to take questions for a few minutes if anyone has any. Dave. You know, these days you're supposed to have a team. You know, you're supposed to have an agent, publicist, booking agent, lawyer. Did Poe ever have anything like that? Well, very unsurprisingly, he struggled to maintain any professional relationship for any length of time. So at one point he did have an agent and he variously had publishers and so on throughout his lifetime. Most of those relationships fell apart. Some of them so spectacularly that those people came out to malign him after his death. But that can serve us too. If we don't have a tribe, maybe it means we are the kind of lone gun that attracts a lot of attention anyway. Anyone else? What was your inspiration for writing this book and 
have you always been a Poe fan or just a little the background on your research? Sure. So like a lot of us growing up in Richmond, if you're from here, then you kind of absorb Poe through the atmosphere. And I can remember encountering him um, in my elementary school. I went to Short Pump Elementary. And in fourth grade, my teacher had us put us put our heads down on our desks to listen to the Raven so we could really pay attention to it. And I remember that experience just profoundly to this day. It was like a first experience of art. And I was so moved and struck by it. Um, and I read a ton of Poe at the time when I was about fourth grade, fifth grade. And then later, like you do, I grew up and I forgot all about him. I did an English major and then I did an MA and I never really encountered him again because he's not that popular inside the academy really. But then in 2016, I was going through a really tough period of my own life and it was very depressed to the point where I had to take mental health leave from work, was having trouble sleeping. And I found that Poe was the only thing I could read. And so I started rereading him for the first time since I was a little kid. And I was so struck by how different he reads when you're an adult, you realize the stories are metaphors for profound psychological pain that he's not necessarily, or that he's talking about two things at once, like on one level, the Spanish Inquisition and torture, and then on another level, the most profound mental pain. So in that dark moment of my own life, he spoke to me. And over a period, I started to read the, oh gosh, all the stories, all the poems, and then a ton of Poe biography. And it's just this huge, incredibly disputed field. Um, there are about, a, there are at least 18 Poe biographies I can think of now. And six of those are major that you would have to cover or reference in any Poe biography. Um, so I got very into this and it kind of drew me out of myself in a great way. And eventually one night I was um, having a drink with a friend of mine and I started telling him, it's the weirdest thing. Edgar Allan Poe is cheering me up. And he said, that sounds like a book. And I kind of joked back, I was like, oh yeah, it'll be called How to Say Never More to Your Problems, which was the working title for some years. Uh, the publisher eventually vetoed that because she thought it was too long. So that's the story, that's how we're here. I think a little column A, little column B. Um, it's hard to say. You know, obviously, I'm not a doctor myself, not a psychologist. A lot of people have alleged, have looked at the record closely and alleged that he was bipolar, perhaps. Um, he definitely, to my eye, seems to have suffered from depression and anxiety. He writes about it with a great deal of authority. Some of the best um, portrayals of it that I can think of in literary history. But to say for sure is really difficult. Um, so I wouldn't be the one to. I would also say that speaking of the historical record, his impossible personality is much better established. We know a lot about that. His difficulty holding jobs, maintaining relationships, his fallings out with friends and quasi girlfriends and such, all of that. There's a lot of it. Uh, so yes, I think he probably did suffer from some kind of mental anguish probably brought on from his childhood losses. And then he also just was kind of a nut on a whole other level. So. Was Drake the only, to your knowledge, was Drake the only uh, 
Yeah, that's a great question because some of you may have encountered his reputation as an opium addict, opium addict, <laughs> addict. Um, but when I was doing my research, there's no evidence that he ever used opium beyond one time when he was probably trying to commit suicide. It wasn't something that he consumed regularly, though it was in some senses available. The reason he discusses opium again and again throughout the stories, you'll find it in many of them, is because it was a trope of romantic writing at the time. His heroes, you know, Byron, Coleridge, Coleridge actually did use opium himself. Um, and there was also in 1821, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, which became this major literary hit. So all this was in the cultural atmosphere at post time. And in some ways, when he referred to opium, he was kind of playing the cool kid. But in his own life, um, alcohol was really what played that role. Though I will say that post-reputation as a drinker is deserved, but I also think it's kind of overestimated at times because if you take the 1830s in Jacksonian America, this was the drunkest time in American history at all. Like literally the average person who could, which is to say adult white men, they were consuming something like five gallons of pure alcohol a year. So and, and nowadays we consume less, consume less than a third of that amount. So if you take your own antique and double it by three, what would that look like? Probably too much. Same, same as in post time. So it was kind of, it if you understand it within context, it's a little bit more understandable. Plus, I mean, there wasn't any Zoloft or Prozac. There wasn't any yoga or Brené Brown to read. So healthy outlets for stress were hard to find. I think in a way that we might forgive Poe a little bit for the times where he did it way too much. Anyone else? Well, let me thank you all. Oh, sorry. Let me thank you all for joining me. It's been so fun talking to you about Poe today, and I wish you all a very happy Halloween.